Welcome to the Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon, your host, as we broadcast from Des Moines, Iowa, formerly the cultural and culinary crossroads of America, now the coronavirus capital of America. Ouch. Hey, a uh, quick shout out to a couple of our local business partners before we move on here. I want to give Gateway Marketing Cafe a shout out. Uh, that's our grocery store and also a great place for lunch and supper through takeout. And they also have takeout on weekends for breakfast. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Hawk Restaurant. That's H-O-Q Hawk Restaurant, where 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. That's Hawk Restaurant. All right, later in the program again, uh, we'll be hearing from uh, Jack Porter about 5G cell phone technology. We'll be ta talking with Liberty Potter about hypersonic nuclear weapons, something I was not familiar with, but which I'm becoming increasingly concerned about. We'll also talk with Mark Cooper with the South Central Iowa Federation of Labor about misconceptions that people often have about organized labor. And then Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farm will join us to talk about America's history and how it has excluded black and indigenous farmers from that history. All right, so, you know, you'll, you will hear me say it over and over again. You're probably sick of it by now. If you're a responsible citizen, you have to be involved in your community. You have to actively work for the betterment of others, not just your own needs, your own family. You got to help other people. That's reality. Sorry. I sorry. <laughs> don't not, don't mean to break that news to you, but yes, that's reality. It's part of life, like breathing, eating, sleeping, working. Civic involvement is a given. You have to do it. Now, of course, in normal times, whatever those are, <laughs> something prior to 19 to 2020, I guess, there's a lot of different ways to make a difference in the world. But in 2020, we no longer live in normal times. You know, this, the very survival of our species and most species on this planet are now in doubt. And our reliance on fossil fuels to power this material-centered lifestyle we've all become very accustomed to, it's heading, it's heading us down a path that, you know, real, we, don't, we don't want to travel that path. And that's my belief. And, I, and one I hold very strongly. There are others who disagree. For example, Eric Hagerman. You know, after the 2016 election and, uh, well, let's call it Donald Trump's ascendancy to the royal throne, otherwise known as the U.S. presidency. You know, Hagerman, he went on, well, kind of a news fast. He, um, he called it a blockade. He decided to avoid learning anything about what was happening in America after the 2016 election. Now, Hagerman lives alone. He's in rural Ohio. His um, daily uh, blockade includes this um, white noise tapes that he plays when he's out in public. Um, he's 55. He was a corporate executive at Nike, made a bunch of money, and apparently saved a lot of it. He, he's not married, no kids. Uh, easier to save, I guess. Um, <laughs> and back in 2015, Hagerman decided to check out of society. He decided to quit his, quit his job, move on. And he, in, in 2015, he bought a farm in rural Ohio and he started making elliptical sculptures. So apparently, though, that was not enough checking out. And when Trump won election in 2016, Hagerman checked out. <laughs> he checked out of the conversation completely. And so now he begins every day with this 30-minute um, drive to get a cup of coffee. And to make sure he doesn't hear anybody talking about the news, he, um, he plugs in this white noise through his headphones while he's, while he's there sipping his coffee, reading, the, reading 
I'm not sure what he's reading. <laughs> not the news. Um, and his checking out is actually a lot of work, not just for him, but for a lot of other people. Of course, the uh, baristas at the coffee shop, they've got to be really careful not to offend him by talking about anything newsworthy. Um, and Hagerman also, here's an example, I guess. from And this, by the way, this story is on the New York Times from uh, 2018. It's, it's pretty fascinating. So Hagerman visited his brother in San Francisco. His brother's also a high-tech guy, a CEO of um, some high-tech firm, I believe. He visited back in 2017, and the Sunday newspaper, here was, here was the deal. The Sunday newspaper had to be kept out of sight. The TV had to be switched off. Uh, his nephews, his, the brother's kids, had to walk basically on eggshells. And when friends came over, they, they, were told that, uh, they were told about the news blockade ahead of time, and they had to watch what they said. But, you know, Hagerman's, um, you know, he's, so, so he's, he's convinced that, you know, there's still something good. He, he knows that he's checked out, but he wants to do something good. So he bought these 45 acres that used to be part of a strip mine. And his plan is to um, put a lake on those 45 acres. He wants to restore the land. Well, it turns out it's already been restored. Again, that New York Times article describes it this way. It says, quote, The land has been reclaimed by nature. Deer, beavers, salamanders, and canopies, the majestic trees, are thriving. So, you know, he spent a, big, a bunch of money on a piece of land that, um, you know, by Hagerman's own admission, has already been reclaimed by nature. But apparently that's not enough. He's going to keep reclaiming it. <laughs> Uh, and somehow, here's what, again, this is what really bugs me. He feels that that's a substitute for being a good citizen. All right, so let's, let's, let's be very honest about this. Only by virtue of money and privilege is this guy able to check out. That's, that's why he can do this. He can avoid current affairs because it's a luxury. that He, he, he can manage that luxury because of his money, because of his privilege. You know, that's, that's a privilege that most people can't afford even if they want to. You know, black Americans, you know, good luck avoiding systemic racism. Immigrant families, yeah, good luck ignoring anti-immigrant policies and the hateful rhetoric of uh, Donald Trump. Oh, and that huge wall being built along our southern border. Good luck ignoring that. Okay, West Coast residents, um, gosh, look what they're facing, these unprecedented fires. You know, good luck avoiding policy discussions about oil and gas subsidies. You know, good luck at avoiding the reality of rising global temperatures and sea levels. You know, and good luck about, and this week, this very week, of course, Trump is in California. You know, good luck at ignoring a president who's going to talk about forest management and not about climate change. You know, he'll tell you to rake the floors, but he won't tell you to take climate change seriously. So, you know... Maybe those things matter to you if your state is ravaged by fire. If the air you breathe, even if you're not affected by the fire itself, you're affected by the smoke, which has become toxic. I mean, in Portland, the air quality index, 400. That is absolutely hazardous. That is absolutely toxic. You know, maybe you can't escape to a farm in Ohio and go on a news blockade. So, um, speaking of rakes, <laughs> you would think that maybe, just maybe, President Trump would begin to understand that climate change is not a hoax. So, you know, he's been saying this in California, too, but um, this weekend, he said in um, Nevada, 
that he said, what's, what's happening in California, Oregon, Washington, is unlike anything we've ever seen before. But that's apparently as far as he was able to let his climate denial mind wander into reality. So here's the direct quote from his um, talk in Nevada. Quote, it's about forest management. Please remember the words, very simple, forest management. And please remember, it's about forest management and other things, but forest management. I mean, it's like he just kept saying it over and over and over again. So yeah, the president said forest management, what, four or five times in a couple sentences? <laughs> and he had this passing reference to, quote, other things, which, who knows, maybe that includes climate change. So if you're frustrated with our president, if you want to pull your hair out, if you still got hair, unlike me, if you still got hair, maybe you want to pull it out, maybe you want to move to Canada, but, you know, Canada, they aren't letting you in right now, so you can't do that. And I don't blame him, really. Maybe Trudeau will build a wall along Canada's southern border and get us to pay for it. So, you know, if you, if you want to do what Eric Hagerman has done and is doing, and check out, I understand. I do, but, but don't do it. Because most of us in America lived privileged lives compared with the tens of millions of people barely surviving or not even surviving in so many poor countries around the world. And not only do we here in the U.S. have this <clears throat> opportunity to take action, we have an obligation to take action. It is our duty, our civic responsibility. So what we can do, we must do, not only for our fellow Americans, but for our fellow humans around the world and to the other species on space spaceship Earth, and again, species that are going extinct at an alarming rate, alarming rate. You know, I'll see. Uh, let me bring this full circle, because I think maybe the strongest voice for taking action is, yeah, wait for it, Eric Hagerman himself. <laughs> because in that New York Times story, Hagerman says, and I quote, I had been paying attention to the news for decades, and I never did anything with it. Well, maybe that's the problem. You think that's the problem? <laughs> you know, my friend Miriam Kashi, who I walked across the country with, likes to say, quote, action is the antidote to despair. Maybe that's why Hagerman fell into despair, because he knew things were problematic, and yet he did nothing. So now he's done something. He ran away. And now he says, and this is again from that New York Times story, quote, the first several months of this blockade thing, I didn't feel all that great about it. It makes me a crappy citizen. It's the ostrich head in the sand approach to political outcomes you disagree with. Well, they have, well, enough said. There you have it, folks. From the mouth of the man who checked out big time. Don't be an ostrich. Don't give up. Don't abdicate your responsibility to make a difference. Get involved. Do it now while we still have a basically, more or less, functioning democracy. Ed Fallon with you folks, back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. At East 5th and Walnut Street, 
Hawk is open Monday through Saturday for dine-in, patio seating, curbside pickup, and carry-out. Hawk also serves fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q-Table.com. back to the Fallon Forum. Again, Ed Fallon with you here. Let me give a quick shout out to a couple of our local business partners at the Des Moines Metro. Thanks to Gateway Market and Cafe, my grocery store, and you can get lunch and supper seven days a week and breakfast on the weekends through the takeout program that they currently operate. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis with 30 years of experience specializing in cutting edge, creative, environmentally friendly designs, including these super insulated structures made from grain bins. That's architecture by synthesis. All right, again, later in the program, we'll, we'll hear from Mark Cooper with the Iowa uh, Federation of Labor. We'll also be talking with uh, Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And we'll be talking with Liberty uh, Potter with uh, Physicians for Social Responsibility. Quite a lineup here, folks. Um, before I welcome our next guest to the program, we're going to be talking about 5G technology. And that that 5G stands for generation, not the same 5G that you have, uh, that you're probably accustomed to. Now, um, we're told that it's safe. There's an article in, in The Atlantic uh, titled, The Great 5G Conspiracy. But there's also an article in Scientific America titled, We Have No Reason to Believe 5G is Safe. <laughs> and in that article, you can read, and I quote, Numerous recent scientific publications have shown that EMF effects living organisms at levels well below most international and national guidelines. Effects include increased cancer risk, cellular stress, increase in harmful free radicals, genetic damages, structural and functional changes of the reproductive system, learning and memory deficits, neurological disorders, and negative impacts on general well-being in humans. Damage goes well beyond the human race as there is growing evidence of harmful effects to both plant and animal life. Now, we have talked about 5G technology on this program before, and I, it's, a, it's an open discussion. We can continue to talk about it. There is more information coming to light. But there is another angle that concerns people as well, and with me to talk about that is Jack, pa Jack Porter. Uh, Jack, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ed. Now, Glad Jack, to be here. Jack's a longtime uh, activist in the Des Moines community, who has, um, who has helped make the uh, Sherman Hill neighborhood the special, historic, and fascinating place that it is. Uh, Jack, welcome to the program. And your concerns of a, I mean, you may be concerned about the health and safety risks as well, I don't know, but I, I know you want to specifically talk about another angle that I think is of interest to people who live in older historic neighborhoods, and that is the way that this technology influences the, the, um, the, uh, the aesthetic infrastructure of a community. That's correct. Um, I, I want to be sure that everybody understands that it's not just the Sherman Hill Historic District. It's every historic district in the state of Iowa. Well, and probably, and probably people, across the country as well, I believe, right? Oh, absolutely. But it's the state law that I'm, I'm you know, cognizant with. And I want to repeat that act so anybody can actually look it up for themselves. And it's called the Iowa Cell 
citing, S-I-T-I-N-G, Act 8C as in Charles, dot 7A as in Albert. Okay. And what year was that passed, like Jack? To, uh, you know, it says uh, enacted uh, Sunday, November 24th, 2019. Okay, that's an odd uh, day. Odd date for enactment. 2020. So, what does what does the act do specifically? How does it affect the sighting of a 5G cell phone uh, service? I want to read. Uh, there's a lot here, but it's what? it's called a small wireless facility, and here's what it says. It's one very important paragraph for sighting the small wireless facility on existing power utility pole or wireless support structure. Regardless of the location, except for on-property zoned and used exclusively for single-family residence use or, and this is the important, within a previously designated area of historic significance pursuant to Section 303.34. Essentially, if it's listed on the National Register as a historic district or an individual property in the state of Iowa, any cell phone, not just Verizon that is the subject today, but any cell phone company cannot just come in and install one of these, what they call small wireless facilities, which is uh, 5G, without getting a request for a um, a board of adjustment uh, certificate from their city. Okay, so let me uh, let me make sure I understand, Jack. The uh, what the uh, what the act, and again, there are states around the country that are also putting in uh, state legislation that allows these companies to put in this five G technology without any intervention or interference from the people who live in those neighborhoods. And I suspect my impression is that this does the same thing. But there are some exemptions attached, and one of those references historic neighborhoods. That, 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 That's correct. Okay. And so here's my question then. I mean, and this may be an issue in other historic districts around the country and around the state of Iowa, but how, um, how is it then that just down the street from me, literally a half block away, without anybody seeming to know about it, I've not talked to anybody in the neighborhood who knows about it, there is now one of these little gizmos on top of the uh, on top of the uh, the uh, the pole uh, providing 5G service how did that happen and i think without knowing for sure i don't even know what company installed it it looks very similar to the other ones that we've seen Verizon installed but it, uh, we know that it was installed late in 2019 i think it appears to me that it was illegal, and it needs to be taken out and removed. Um, there's also, though, uh, Ed, a federal law that affects the whole country, not just the Iowa law for Iowa. And it's actually called Section 106. And what does that law do? Uh, the same, all, same thing? But all, no. Okay. All federally funded or licensed, if it's a federally licensed, like uh, F, uh, uh, FD Fire or um, whatever 
the cell phones are under um, the federal government. If they need a license, they're supposed to submit to the state preservation office, whatever it's called. Some of them are called different things. What's called a Section 106 review. That purpose is to establish if any federal funded or federally licensed project affects a historic property. That includes areas or vistas. Uh, it includes burial grounds underground or structures above ground or vistas in historic properties. And that application is supposed to go to the SHPO for comment before construction. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 SHPO, it's, it sounds like at both the federal and state level, and I know that Iowa and Florida aren't, aren't the only two states that have enacted laws that enable the uh, placement of these structures. It sounds like the telecommunications corporations have been busy at work lobbying uh, and getting past laws that are going to enable them to move forward with this technology with as little citizen input and citizen objection as possible. It sounds like they've got... Well, they're trying to come too, yeah. Yeah, they're, and like they're trying to cover their bases at both the state and the federal level, and maybe at the local level as well. So, uh, you, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens with this uh, particular device in my neighborhood, your neighborhood, and whether they are forced to take that down because it did not comply with the state provision. But it also, it's, it's fascinating to me, you've got, I mean, Scientific America is a, is a, is a, is a solid publication. That's not some off-the-wall rag that's going to spew false science. And, and they're saying, quote, we have no reason to believe F, or 5G is safe. They have no reason to believe it is safe. And they list all hmm. these probabilities that uh, are associated with these, uh, these placements. And so, you know, I... I, I think there's lots of reasons why people ought to be paying attention to this, and I'm glad you raised another one. And uh, I guess my final question for you, Jack, before we get around to a break is, what's the next step? What's the next step for, for you and for this effort here in Sherman Hill? There's a zoning board of adjustment by the um, city of Des Moines uh, coming up next week. Uh, I don't have the exact date. I think it was the 23rd, but I'm not sure about that, which is required for them to act to give this um, a certificate uh, or allowance, however you want to put it, uh, for Verizon to install what we think is already installed over in our neighborhood and the proposed one at 16th and Center next to the Uncle Henry Wallace house. And they, they haven't... Uh, bothered to set up a neighborhood meeting that I know of. Uh, they haven't submitted uh, to the state of Iowa a 106 review request that I know of. And uh, their drawings, even their application mentions the Sherman Hill Historic District, but that's all it does. Yeah. Well, and, remar <laughs> and remarkably, uh, again, they've already installed one in there, as far as we know. Yeah. Uh, there was nothing. I mean, I as a, as a resident a half block away, I received no notification about it. I, I, it was called to my attention by the, by the woman who has, uh, she, she lives uh, right, um, right next to it. She says, you know, I just saw that go up. <laughs> she wasn't notified either, apparently. So anyway, yeah. we'll, we'll, uh, we'll keep people updated on this. And again, I know we've done conversations about 5G before. Um, we've got to run to a break. Uh, Jack, uh, thank you so much for joining us. 
Thanks for inviting us. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Folks, we've been talking with Jack uh, Jack Porter, a leader here in the uh, Sherman Hill Historic District of Des Moines, Iowa. When we come back in a minute, we're going to talk uh, with a representative of Physicians for Social Responsibility, Liberty Potter, about a very serious and disturbing advancement in the technologies around nuclear weapons, specifically uh, hydroponic weaponry. We'll be talking about that. Sorry, hyper, sorry, hypersonic weapons. We'll be talking about that in a couple minutes when we're back from a break on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, and Tina Haas Findlay. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. Noche on Walnut Street, south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here, folks, broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, formerly known as the cultural and culinary crossroads of America, now the COVID-19 capital of America. Ouch. Hey, a quick shout out to a couple of our local uh, uh, nonprofit uh, partners, Bold Iowa, fighting climate change and the Dakota Access Pipeline since 2015. Check out boldiowa.com. Also, thanks to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, where you can learn how to turn your yard into dinner. That's birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. All right, later in the program, Mark Cooper with the uh, South, Central, uh, South Central Labor Coalition here in Iowa going to join us. We're going to be talking about some misconceptions people have about organized labor. And then finally, in the tail end of the program, Kathy Burns with Birds and Bees Urban Farm is going to join us. But I'm going to turn to a very, very serious conversation now with uh, Liberty Potter. She's an intern with Physicians for Social Responsibility, uh, now studying her master's degree in international relations at the University of St. Andrews. Liberty, welcome to the program. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Okay, so hypersonic nuclear weapons. And I'm, I'm somebody who pays attention to foreign affairs. I had not heard of this. Um, right. It's just, what I'm learning is disturbing. Perhaps let's assume that many, of, many members of our audience maybe don't know about hypersonic nuclear weapons. Give us the short take on what we're talking about here. So hypersonic weapons are a new type of missile. They can be fit with either nuclear warheads or conventional warheads. And by definition, they fly at least five times the speed of sound or Mach 5. That's about like 3,800 miles per hour. And they, but many actually travel that high hypersonic speed at Mach 10 to 25. And they are known primarily because they're combining the speed of, interco of intercontinental ballistic missiles, which only fly in a predictable kind of arc. And 
they're combining that with the maneuverability of cruise missiles, which typically reach only Mach 0.5. So with their unpredictability and their advanced technology, they're injecting a new kind of additional level of risk and ambiguity into what is already an accelerating nuclear arms race. Okay, so they're basically a lot faster. Um, that's, that's the primary concern, is these things travel with incredible speed. Yes. They also have um, really impressive um, deception capabilities. So right now there is no defense, existing defense, against these kinds of missiles. They travel unmanned at low altitudes, and they work to avoid detection from early warning radars or key satellites. So in essence... You only know when they're approaching once they're within a few minutes of their target. Okay, that's disturbing enough right there. <laughs> so um, <laughs> which are, are there countries that have already developed these hypersonic weapons, or is this still a conceptual thing? So Russia and China have successfully tested these weapons. The United States in the past have been relatively restrained with their funding into these programs, but in the past three years or so, they've reinstated an interest, and Congress actually voted to have to require a functional missile by October of 2022. So if Russia, how, how long have Russia and China had functional hypersonic weapons? Since about 2018, they began unveiling them. Okay, why was the, why, why, why was the U.S. government's response to not move forward with that technology? So in the past, there have been some technological hurdles that the United States has kind of shied away from. Um, developing hypersonic technology can be very dangerous, dealing with a lot of, you know, high speeds, high velocities, high temperatures. Um, we've already seen a few, the first fatalities from developing these weapons. In August of 2019, I believe about seven Russian scientists died while testing a hypersonic cruise missile, which was one of the region's worst nuclear accidents in Chernobyl. Huh. So there is some risk in developing these weapons. Okay, so the, um, yeah, it just, so right now the U.S. Congress has agreed to move forward with funding for these weapons and to have something in place by 2022. Yes. Okay, but in the meantime, again, if, uh, if China or Russia were to decide to launch a hypersonic weapon, there's no immediate defense, but... Technically, theoretically at least, the U.S. could decide, as it sees these hypersonic weapons coming into our cities, to launch nuclear weapons, conventional nuclear weapons. So in theory, but because of the technology, there's, it's very difficult to see when, when these missiles actually arrive. You cannot tell, you virtually cannot tell if there's a conventional warhead on it, a nuclear warhead. So it's very difficult to kind of you know, have the right kind of knowledge to defend against and create, um, you know, realistic decision-making processes to combat against them. But because of their this newfound technology, there really is no defense. There's virtually no defense for hypersonic weapons. So as, as we're having this conversation, I'm realizing that uh, we have achieved as a planet, uh, as a country, a new level of insanity. There, this is absolutely insane. <laughs> that this even exists. Uh, it's insane that uh, we have seen even the minimum number of nuclear weapons treaties we have in place uh, uh, go, that we've, we've reneged. I mean, uh, let's see, was it, how, many, how many different treaties has Donald Trump backed out of? Uh, I've lost track. But uh, 
some treaties that have been around for a long time that um, served an important purpose, maybe not assuring no risk, but at least maybe hopefully stepping back from the brink a little bit. This takes us in the wrong direction, correct? Right. And I think there's a lot of people have concerns, not just is this the right time to financially pursue hypersonic weapon development, considering the massive effects of the coronavirus and the state of the American economy. Um, the Pentagon requested for 2021 $3.2 billion for hypersonic related research. And experts are expecting that by 2025, that will be up to about $5 billion. So it's really taking a lot of funds, a lot of resources, a lot of manpower. Right. There's that. But there's also, again, the absolute insanity. These weapons exist, but they must never be used. And of course, um, they were used back in uh, 1945 uh, in Hiroshima, in Nagasaki, August 6th and August 9th. And um, they haven't been used since. And one could well ask uh, why, and it may just be, I mean, when you think of all the things that can go wrong, um, insanity, uh, malice, uh, malfunction. Uh, we've had plenty of, um, plenty of uh, near accidents over the years. And you know, we, you know, we've been living under this uh, nuclear sword of Damocles for, what, 60 plus years now. And uh, it seems like the conversation shouldn't be about, hey, what's the next generation of of destructive weapons we can invent, and now we're up to you know these hypersonic weapons. It seems that like the question to me, the discussion should be, how do we move beyond a world that is at risk of 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 being destroyed, or I mean maybe completely destroyed, or at least um, uh, severely uh, impacted by nuclear weapons? Is that is is that discussion on the horizon, or are we are we just are we just continuing to move beyond? what seems to me the most reasonable thing we need to be looking at. Well, this hypersonics do kind of symbolize that type of, you know, debate. So there are two likely courses of action, what you kind of spoke about. Either the United States could take a leadership role and encourage more multilateral agreements and curb just the unbridled development of these weapons. They could be controlled by negotiations, you know, um, and whatnot, or we could continue to invest in them and compete with the aggressive programs of foreign counterparts. I think that if you want to move past kind of the time of nuclear weapons, you need to create incentives so that countries are better off without them than with them. And that's, that involves changing the ways in which we view power and security. Are we anywhere near having that discussion? I think that the next few months will probably tell us whether or not we are. It has to a lot to do with, you know, our country's leadership and what our leaders' priorities are. How do you, how do you see the um, the both the uh, the president the presidential race and the um, race to control the U.S. Congress and the U.S. Senate? How do you see those as playing out, given the different scenarios of who might win, in terms of how in terms of in terms of how it would impact this conversation? So I think that if you were to see Donald Trump win again, then there would be a continued dedication and funds and resources and just prioritizing defense programs, whereas if he were to not win, there might be cutbacks on that. So it would you might see us reinstating a lot of these programs and continuing full force with defense programs. Okay. Well, 
Again, this is a tough conversation, and uh, I appreciate you taking the time to join us. I appreciate the research you've uh, you've done. You really sound like you've mastered a lot of important information here that uh, needs to be shared. So happy to do my part here to help share that uh, that information with our audience. Again, um, we've been talking with uh, Liberty uh, Potter. She uh, worked as an intern with the uh, group Physicians for Social Responsibility. She's now pursuing a master's degree in international relations at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Uh, Liberty, thank you uh, so much for joining us. Yes, thank you so much for having me. All right, folks, when we come back, uh, Mark Cooper is going to join us. We're going to talk about misconceptions that some people have regarding organized labor. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, well, if you've got an elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Kim Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. Hey, welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Uh, thanks for tuning in today, folks. This is Ed Fallon, your host. When we come back from... Uh, uh, after this next segment, we're going to be talking with Kathy Burns about America's history that, America's agricultural history and how it's excluded black and indigenous farmers. Um, before we welcome Mark uh, Cooper to the program, too, I want to give a quick shout out to a couple of our local business partners. Uh, thanks to Ritual Cafe. That's located on 13th Street in downtown Des Moines. And uh, of course, they don't serve in-house right now, but you can get anything through takeout. Fair trade coffee, fair trade tea and an all-vegetarian menu. That's Ritual Cafe. Thanks also to Noche Jazz and Cabaret, located on Walnut Street. Some of the concerts are happening there with appropriate social distancing in place, but you can also catch a lot of their concerts online. That's Noche Jazz and Cabaret. All right, welcome back to the program again. Thanks for tuning in today, folks. Uh, Mark Cooper, the president of the South Central Iowa Federation of Labor, with us for this conversation. Mark, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me today, Ed. Yeah, and I know you know we've got a we've got a pretty broad audience on this program, and some people might not be as familiar with what organized labor does. I bet many are, but um, I know there's a lot of misconceptions about labor out there as well. So why don't we just start with that? Tell us, um, you know, what 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 is uh, what is the labor movement all about, and what are some of these um, maybe misunderstandings that are floating around out there that people need to be aware of and thinking about. Well, sure, Ed. You know, I think one of the biggest misconceptions is when people just talk about unions in general, uh, and and they uh, assign this label to unions, and and that when there is a union uh, representing people in a specific place, 
again, they uh, use just the adage, well, it's the union. And really what the labor movement is about, it is a movement. And uh, it's about the people that are that belong to that particular organization. They're the ones that make it work. So it's not the union leadership. Uh, it's not, you know, my, my position in the union. It's actually what makes it work are the people that belong to that specific organization, kind of like a church. And that's a lot of people. What, about 11% of the United, the United States workforce? Correct. When you, when you put the, uh, or consider the um, public sector unions, yes, we're at about 11% of the, of the total workforce that, are represented I mean, by unions. My math isn't good enough to tell me how many people that is nationwide, but it's, a, it's a tens of millions of Americans. Correct that belong to Absolutely. labor unions, yeah. And again, I know yep. that uh, when when unions were first uh, organized back in the eighteen hundreds, uh, I mean that that fight was one that was met. You know, the 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 the, uh, the um, corporate bosses weren't happy, uh, <laughs> and a lot of the uh, a lot of the initial struggles um, saw working people dying in the in the line of trying to trying to fight for you know fairer conditions for workers and. I think maybe people forget about that. You know, we take for granted the the eight-hour work day and ideally the 40-hour work week. We take for granted some level of benefits, and people forget that those were pretty hard fought for. Well, and that's one of our challenges, too, in the labor movement is that, you know, a lot of people that are that are that belong to unions these days, they inherited their union. And just like you said, they didn't work for it. They didn't. Uh, struggle for it. They didn't lay down their lives for it. And there were people back, like you say, back in the 1800s that did just that. And I think that, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent, and this has been said, that if, if you're given something, you don't really appreciate it as much as if you've had to work for it. So I think that's the same way in the labor movement. So that's what we have to do, I believe, as labor leaders, is to educate our members uh, to the struggles that were that were fought for to get that union in the first place. And then you got to keep, even after you get something, you still got to keep working uh, to hold on to it. You just can't make the assumption that it's just going to be around. And I think that that's why we've seen a good part of why we've seen a decline in membership. You know, not only did a lot of the union jobs move overseas, uh, you know, back in the seventies and the eighties, but, you know, we've also had people that have forgotten uh, what it was all about in the first place. Yeah, and and again, you're right. It's an it's an ongoing struggle. You know, my um my grandparents. I'm I'm a fairly uh, reason, reasonably uh, much a newcomer to this country. Mark, uh, I'm second generation uh, Irish American. My grandparents came over less than a hundred years ago, and uh, mm -hmm. yeah, they were greeted with signs in New York City saying, "If, if you know Irish need not apply." Uh, yep. My grandfather's uh, passport of entry has his race indicated as Irish, so apparently we were something separate from, <laughs> from uh, other people coming through Ellis Island. And uh, his job was, uh, he got involved with the uh, Transportation Workers Union in New York and uh, worked on the bus lines, trolley lines. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, I mean the, uh, the, obviously when you, when you come over, when, when you come from a country where you are impoverished or, or when the country's at war, or for some other, whatever other reason drives you out of your homeland to this country of opportunity and ideally equality, you know, you, you, you tend to want to vote for people, support people, politicians, candidates who have your interest in mind. And, you know, what I've noticed, though, is um, a couple generations later, 
I mean, certainly I, certainly I share my, great, my, my grandfather's esteem for labor and his passion for, you know, for, for making sure that everybody has a fair shake. But there's folks in, you know, I look some, you know, some people in that gen, in two, two, uh, you know, two generations later, totally forget where they came from. <laughs> they, you know, they, they forget the conditions in the home country that drove them here. And they forget how labor and other elements of that social safety network made it possible for them to, you know, establish a foothold here to get a good job, to make, to build a decent life for their family. And, you know, I guess that's part of our challenge is to figure out how to continue to have that conversation with people who might have forgotten that and in some cases never knew it. You know, and I agree with you 100 percent, Ed. I myself am a first-generation American. My uh, uh, mother came here from Germany with her family, and the reason why my, my grandfather left Germany with his family because of the impending war, uh, World War II. Mm. And he was he was a, a pacifist man. Uh, he was an electrician, a worker, uh, but uh, he saw that uh, where the, the direction that Germany was heading, and he didn't want any part of that. So, and, and you're right. I think to pick up your family and move all those you know thousands of miles to, to to go someplace else. I mean, you really have to be uh, you know feel desperate, I guess, because I know that we visited Germany and. and after I graduated from high school, we went to a church where my family uh, went to and, and had there was people buried there, my family members that are over 400 years old. So, I mean, the, well, these people had lived there forever, right? I mean, yeah. literally. And, uh, it, but chose to come to this country. And, and to, to do that, I think, takes a lot of fortitude. And just because yeah. there's a lot of people that don't live any farther than a mile away from where they currently were born. Yeah. Well, and, and again, they, they, cho- they chose to come here, but in some cases right. it wasn't a choice. It was leave or die. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. You know, labor, labor unions are one of the uh, one of the constituency groups in Hitler's Hitler's crosshair. You know, it wasn't just yep. the Jews. It was Catholics. It was labor union people. It was others, other people yep. who were a threat to his hegemony. And, you know, we kind of see that today, too, with the um, the political <laughs> environment where you've got you know, a current president who is demonizing so many different groups of people, including labor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. in some ways, this has got to be a tough time for the labor movement here as well, with the presidency and in many cases, governors and legislatures that are very anti-labor. Well, one of the things that we notice, too, with different administrations, and this happens, is that each administration gets to pick its own folks to lead these different agencies. So the Department of Labor is now being run by Trump appointees. And needless to say, they're not overly friendly towards workers. And uh, we're seeing that very evident. We saw it, you know, during the uh, the Reagan administration. We've seen it through just about every Republican administration that the folks that are appointed to these agencies, and that's why it's important I think, for people to realize that the people that get elected make those appointments and that that has a bigger impact on your life than the actual individual. Now, it's it's certainly no secret that Republican administrations uh, tend to be pretty anti-labor. We've seen that at the state level around the country, including here in Iowa, with the erosion of um, of, uh, public public sector unions. Um, In Iowa, it's called Chapter 20. But... um, have you seen, would you, would you, what, what kind of a grade, if you were to give a grade to Democratic administrations in the past, at the federal level, but certainly here in Iowa as well, 
how would how would that report card look? Well, you know, given the fact that we've struggled, and what I mean by we, we workers have struggled over the past 40 years. That's a generation uh, when wages started stagnating, not only here in Iowa, but also in these United States. Uh, now, during that 40-year period, we've had Democratic uh, folks and we've had Republican folks in office, right? So, I mean, it's the same story or can be the same story. Um, no matter who's in office. So that's why you have to be vigilant, I think, and we as workers have to be vigilant and vote for people that support workers' issues. Is there a problem, would you say, with uh, rank-and-file union members voting for politicians who don't tend to have their best interests in mind? You know, we saw that was evident when we had what, I, what we call the trifecta here in Iowa. We had a a Democratic governor, a Democratic House, and a Democratic Senate here in the state of Iowa. And we had some key issues that we thought in, in, in organized labor that we thought would get passed during that time, which we were sadly disappointed. And, of course, then we have to go back to our members and say, hey, it makes a difference to who you vote for. So, that you know, we have those conversations. We have those conversations with all politicians and that they need to be cognizant of that, that, you know, that's how you got elected, and that's how you're going to remain in office as long as you uh, come through with, with what you said you were going to do in the first place. One last question, like supporting Mark. Supporting workers. If this question sure. is off limits, let me know. But one last question. How do you see labor, uh, what, what, what role do you see labor playing in the upcoming uh, general election, specifically for the office of presidency? The office of presidency? Yeah, the, office, the office of the well, president. You know, yeah. Right. Well, it looks like, you know, I mean, the, the uh, national FLCIO has come out in support of the Democratic candidate. Uh, quite a few of the, the national labor organizations have also come out. I saw something the other day, though, and I haven't verified this, that the largest policeman's union has endorsed Trump. And uh, that's another whole story. But <laughs> what I've seen and everything that I've read is that labor is, is 100 percent behind a high 90% behind uh, the current uh, candidate for president on the Democratic side. Yeah, all right. Well, hey, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, folks, we've been talking with Mark Cooper, the president of the South Central Iowa Federation of Labor. Mark, appreciate your work and uh, keep in touch. Thank you, Ed. And, you know, we'll have to go out and do a bike ride, a real bike ride. <laughs> we'll do that. Okay. <laughs> All right, folks, when we come back from a short break, uh, Kathy Burns with Birds and Bees Urban Farm is going to join us. We're going to talk about America's history and how it has excluded black and indigenous farmers from that agricultural history. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-built services for high-performance, no-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. They've been doing this work for over 30 years on a wide variety of project types, specializing in super-insulated structures made from, wait for it, grain bins. Yep, with the right experience, tools, and creativity, so much is possible. View images of projects and learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual.
Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon, your host here, broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa. Hey, thanks for tuning in today, folks. Um, before we go to our final segment, I want to give a quick shout-out to a couple of our local business partners. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's my grocery store. And you can get uh, lunch and supper seven days a week through their takeout service. You can also get breakfast on the weekends, again, through takeout. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating creatures great and small for over 30 years. That's Story County Veterinary Clinic. All right, welcoming to the program now, Kathy Burns. We're going to talk about America's farm history and how it has excluded black and indigenous farmers. You know, we're white. We farm. Most people who own and operate a farm in the U.S. are white. And we can dig into the, the uh, statistics about that a little bit. But um, first, let's talk about why this is on our mind today. Well, it's been on my mind for a few days because we just passed the date 9-11. And a lot of us remember the attacks on the Twin Towers and um, the, the devastation that ensued and the lives that were lost and the people that, that were heroes during that time. And I saw several posts on social media by friends who use the hashtag never forget and I was a little confused because frankly some of the same people who posted about that incident in which many many lives were lost many white lives were lost not entirely but not entirely mostly. but but also at that supposedly the hands of people who weren't as white as 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 you and I are. <laughs> That's one way this, to I'm say just it. being frank. Um, <laughs> those same people had also posted. Not everybody, but some of those people had posted uh, messages earlier about uh, black people, indigenous people in the United States, and talking about why do we have all these problems? Why do they keep bringing up the past? They should just get over it. Move on. Move on. Yeah. Get over it. And it struck me as a double-edged sword there. Maybe a little so insensitive. It, insensitive, yeah. and it bothered me. And it made me think about what we do here on Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And we've talked about white privilege in farming before, but I looked up uh, some of the stats. Uh, but I thought, why why are fewer, uh, not, not exclusively, but why are fewer people of color farming in the United States, owning and operating farms? Um, but I... I found this history book that I bought years ago at an antique shop. It's called The Little History of the United States. It's a children's book from 1940. It's ingrained in the psyche of the United States, quote, history, that the white people are the ones who belong here. Two passages from that book. One is referring to Christopher Columbus's landing on these lands that he thought were India. Yeah, he was um, off by a couple this, oceans. This is what the author wrote for children's history. They rowed to shore in little boats and were surprised to find reddish-brown men dressed in a few feathers and skins. Columbus called them Indians because he thought they had reached India. The Indians were just as surprised to see him. They had never seen people with white skins before. Columbus took some Indians back to Spain with him. He made more trips across the Atlantic. And just like that, he just took some back with him. And we know the history also includes right. that, that people were mistreated, harmed, enslaved, and killed 
when when the, some of these explorers landed and, on these shores. And it still persists in in, in American mythology that uh, that native people were were you know, they weren't farmers. That we 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 brought the advanced uh, culture of, of farming to these lands, but mm-hmm. no, the native peoples were very uh, very successful, very and very extensive agriculturalists. Also, so. in this book, in a chapter called "The Indian Loses." Uh, they talk about railroad expansion, and there's a description of natives, uh, quote, last desperate attempts to keep the white men out of what was left of their hunting grounds, and how they attacked settlers and built railroad builders, and how the soldiers, quote, were sent out to force them to stay in certain places called reservations. So the chapter ends uh, with a comment about how long it took these um, soldiers to make the Apaches stay, stop their raids, and keep them from putting people in terror, and at last the Santa Fe Railroad could be completed. Uh, it was seen as a victorious thing. In other words, the people who were here first had no place. They had no place and no right to a place. Regarding um, black people in America, the book says, in the war between the states, the people of the North and the people of the South couldn't agree on a number of things, one of which was slavery. There were now a great many quote, Negroes in the South, their owners usually took good care of them. Oh, isn't that nice? So we know that these people were not here by choice. They were not taken care of well. And in uh, another chapter, uh, it refers to Abraham Lincoln. After a general description of the Civil War, it says, ever since then, colored people have been free to work where and for what they want. And so we also know not true history. <laughs> That's why the the concept yeah. of never forget should apply to everyone in this country, to everyone around the world who has lived through, seen, and suffered from atrocities and still carry the burden of those atrocities mm. from the past. Yeah. And, you know, every culture has um, a lot of people, especially cultures that are still more connected to their traditions, their past. A lot of people are very passionate about agriculture, whether they're you know, native people here. Um, I, mean, I mean, look at every, every black person, you know, stolen from Africa and brought here as a slave. You know, they have an agricultural history as well, not just there, but, but here. And here it was, of course, forced. But, but you know, it's, it's, um, I know that uh, black farmers in the South in particular have had some real hard times. Mm-hmm. Um, remaining viable because of a lot of uh, a lot of uh, you know, systemic pressure against them and I, I know that you know I know that a lot of the more recent immigrant communities here in the US are passionate about farming they mm-hmm. want to continue to farm mm-hmm. according to the USDA um, uh, agricultural statistics services uh, black farmers or people who identify as black in the US Oh, I had that statistic right up here just a moment ago. They in in 2017 they accounted for 1.4 percent of the country's 3.4 million producers, and as far as indigenous farmers, they accounted for 2.3 percent of the producers, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's that's a tiny fraction compared to the overall population of those people in the country, yeah. in, in in general, and so. It's, it's, it's vastly underrepresented. It's interesting to see that for uh, indigenous farmers, most of them identify as women. And uh, indeed, we went to Meskwaki Settlement 
not too long ago to After the help our, our farmer friend who is a woman to harvest some, some corn. So, yeah, Corn that got flattened by the derecho, but not to the extent that, that conventional corn was flattened. Uh, it was a little more resilient, and that was good to see. Right, um, right. And not, not to the extent that our corn was flattened. Uh, our corn is about 10, maybe 12 feet tall, <laughs> or was until the derecho came through. So maybe that's not the best variety to be growing here. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, a couple of couple of things that we can do about this. Um, speaking of the Meskwaki corn that we helped to harvest, Columbus Day is coming up in uh, October, and so we can continue to learn more about indigenous farming, agriculture, historically and and currently. And uh, in February, we'll see Black History Month come around again. And for friends who say, why do they need their own month? Um, we just explain that, I think, because history has vastly excluded mm -hmm. people of color and especially from agriculture, uh, just just wipe them off of the books. So we, yeah. we need that education. We need that information. Yeah, and I see that, again, Columbus Day is um, under a lot of pressure to be dropped. Uh, and we concur with that. And be replaced by Indigenous people. Let's cancel today. it. <laughs> Let's cancel it. Right, right, right. We canceled Charles last week. We can this week we'll cancel Columbus Day. Anyway, and there, there's a lot of movement to afoot to, to, and in some places it's already happened where it's been declared uh, Indigenous Peoples Day. So mm -hmm. good stuff. Maybe all of October will be declared Indigenous Peoples Month. We'll see. Anyway. All right, so hey, folks, um, thanks for tuning in to today's Fallon Forum. Kathy Burns, my guest here with uh, Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Uh, thanks to Kathy, who's also part of our production team, and to Sherry Herdina. And thanks to you, our audience, for tuning in. Again, check out our podcast on the Fallon Forum website. Thanks to the uh, stations in Iowa, KHOI 89.1 FM in Ames and KICI in Iowa City that rebroadcast this program. And thanks to other stations through the Pacifica Network around the country who also pick up this program. Again, this is Ed Fallon, your host. Back to you next week.